Okay, hello everyone. Uh, thanks again for downloading this newest episode of the podcast. It's been a, a while since we've done the last one, but uh, I'm very happy uh, today to be here at the University of Technology Sydney at the Centre for Quantum Software and Information. And joining me today is Peter Rohde, hello, an ARC Future Fellow uh, here at UTS. And Peter's had a long history of theoretical work in quantum computing, quantum communications, and some of his more recent stuff, which may be of interest to people, is about the geostrategic policies uh, related to quantum computing and quantum technology development. So, Pete, thanks for giving me an hour of your time. Thank you very much for having me join you. So, first of all, as we usually do, we'll just give people a little bit of a bio of how you got started in quantum information, what attracted you to this field of research and what you've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, so what, what attracted me was um, originally I was a, an engineer by training. That was my undergrad degree. It was computer systems engineering, but at the same time I had a deep interest in, in modern physics, particularly quantum mechanics. And this was the obvious way to reconcile it, to, to, to merge the two into something that is greater than the sum of the parts in the sense that... Um, classical computing, it really always just follows the same trajectory. You make certain developments, but it has a very predictable consequence in, 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 in what the outcome is, which is X increase in compute performance or whatever the metric may be. But you combine it with, um, with quantum physics and then based on the observation that different laws of physics implies different laws of information and therefore different laws of computing power, that's what I thought was the real killer uh, unification of these two fields. The, the idea that, the, the, that by unifying computer science with the idea that the computing is built on the laws of physics, whatever they may be, and therefore if you transition from classical physics to quantum physics, that you get something that's astronomically different. That was a really, really uh, fascinating insight that I uh, learned quite early on and which really drove my passion in the whole field. So you did your undergrad and PhD at the University of Queensland. Yeah, that's right, both of them. And so undergrad was purely classical computing through a computer systems engineering degree. And then for honours, I decided to reach out to the physics department to do a project in optical quantum computing with Tim Ralph. And I really enjoyed that and we got a paper out of that. And then I approached him to do a PhD because I thought this is just a fantastic unification of the two fields. And... uh, and I really enjoyed it and I was very passionate about it, so it just very much remained that way. So when did you start hearing about quantum computing? I mean, mm. at that time, what, this would have been 2000, 2001? Yeah, so... It wouldn't I, have been I, that prolific within the... I began my degree in 2000, and at that time, this was a really obscure, super niche kind of field, and there were very few people uh, really promoting it in a, in a big sort of way, and certainly you didn't have any of the major private sector... Uh, investment that, that we've recently started having in the field but at the same time by really what was very much pure coincidence and nothing else there just happened to be this amazing mass of really world-class talent at the place where I did my undergrad degree at UQ uh, people like uh, Michael Nielsen who wrote the standard textbook in the field and Tim Ralph who's one of the pioneers of optical quantum computing and Jared Milburn who's also sort of the the founding father of optical computing just by pure chance there happened to be this critical mass of people at UQ and 
so by coincidence, it just happened to be the, the perfect possible environment to, to make that transition. So, I mean, your jump into optical quantum computing, I mean, you were more interested in quantum computing per se, and it was just, you know, serendipitous mm. that the world-leading yeah, very much so. people no, were no, th- This is really very much a case of, of being in the right place at the right time. There were other institutions where if I had have had that undergraduate degree at the time, that opportunity would not have existed. Um, during my undergrad degree, I, I did lots of elective subjects. I, I overloaded and, and sort of ended up with enough uh, uh, elective subjects to, to effectively have two degrees, but I never went that way. But I, I just overloaded and did lots of extra subjects on things that I thought were interesting. And one of them was just this curiosity I had in, in modern physics. So I pursued that as elective subjects, and, and Tim Ralph was the um, the, 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 the lecturer in, in, in undergrad quantum mechanics that I enrolled in. And so I just casually approached him and said, hey, uh, could I do my engineering undergrad um, project with you, which well, really was the honours project, which is part of the undergrad degree. And I did the, the necessary admin hurdles to, to get that recognised and, and, and then did this, uh, did this physics project in optical quantum computing that got recognised for my engineering degree. And that is really what instigated the transition into the field and led to the PhD the year after. Mm-hmm. And then you focus quite a lot, both in your PhD work and, and then in your postdoc work on sort of protocols and, and architecture elements very much mm-hmm. within the optical quantum computing regime. Yeah, that's right. Um, as uh, I'm sure your listeners all know, all, all, all these things in quantum computing are very much architecture specific and certainly things like error correction and and the way you go about building things, it all depends enormously on, on what the constraints are of the physical system that you're using as a basis for building your qubits. So I very much went along that route, uh, but specifically in the optical context, which is very different to to other physical systems, uh, you, you would draw no comparisons between what I did in my research compared to the sorts of architectures that are emerging today in the in the, in the private sector like the recent Google architecture, there's, there's just no comparison there. They're completely different and you have mm-hmm. to think about things in completely different ways. And if it does reach the point of being scalable enough to be error corrected and that kind of, kind of thing, the codes that people use will be completely different. And, and so it's all very, very specific, but, but that's the specific one that I, that I focused on. I mean, sort of looking at it now compared to, to what it was like 10 or 15 years ago, when you look at you know linear optics versus superconductors or versus ion traps, certainly there's there's pros and cons with every architecture. But I mean, how do you see the field developing in terms yeah. of being able to reach a scalable system design? So, so, so this is always the impossible question to ask, or or to, to answer rather, because because uh, if we knew the answer, then we wouldn't be doing any of this research. We'd <laughs> just be investing all of it into the one that we knew that was most likely to succeed. Yeah. But, but the specific advantages of the optical architectures, um, uh, first of all, if you're dealing with things like passive optics, that's pretty easy to do uh, nowadays. Um, when I was an undergrad, it used to be these, these massive laboratories, sort of the ones that I was first exposed to were the ones by Andrew Wyatt at, at UQ as well. And that, that's another one of the, the major figures as part of uh, my education, Andrew White in the experimental field, who was also at UQ. But back in, in those days, it was all discrete elements. It was this massive lab 
with just hordes of students just manually aligning all these elements and, mm-hmm. you know, dozens and dozens of them. And it was incredibly complex and incredibly cumbersome. There's literally no way you could possibly build any kind of scalable architecture that way. It's just, it's just literally impossible uh, to, to, make, to achieve scalability that way. But, of course, in the meantime, um, people like Jeremy O'Brien, who uh, I co-authored one of my first papers with as a PhD student, because he was also at the University of Queensland as a postdoc at the time, and then subsequently went to lead quantum photonics at Bristol, probably the, the forefront photonics group in the world and then uh, split off to make a, uh, a private sector company in the in the field which uh, which seems very very convinced that they can in fact make a scalable um, or at least a constrained scalable architecture in this way um, but um, but but because that transition was to integrated photonics where things are going onto a chip in a, in, a, in a miniaturized form that's obviously the way it has to go if you want to achieve scalability you can't have discrete optics elements mm-hmm. uh, that's the way the whole thing is going and these days I've, I've worked more recently with, with Chinese groups Chao Yang Lu and Zhang Pan in China doing the same sort of technology integrated photonics that's the way to go um, and, and, it, and it does overcome this incredibly problematic thing of having um, a squadron of a thousand undergrads manually aligning elements in the lab uh, and instead it's just printed onto a chip the way modern microprocessors are. It's obvious that, that from a fabrication perspective that's the way it has to go. It doesn't overcome another problem which is the, the feed-forward problem. Uh, in, in, in optical quantum computing one of the things with linear optics is that you necessarily require what's called uh, active feed forward in other words the ability to measure some photons uh, and then based on the measurement outcome go forward and manu- manually sort of reconfigure what happens subsequently mm-hmm. and it, it's not possible to make a universal quantum computing and I emphasize the word universal there without that feed forward component um, and even integrating things and miniaturizing them doesn't overcome that problem that's still a fundamental problem that needs to be overcome. And it's simply because, you know, light moves really, really fast. Well, exactly right. This is, this is you know, th- this is exactly why uh, these, these things are so architecture dependent. Uh, with, with other types of qubits, that might not be the case, but we, with photons, they're necessarily moving. You can't exactly stop them in any mm-hmm. reasonable way uh, unless you put them into memory or something. But it just isn't practical to, to do anything other than try and reconfigure the circuit that's coming up ahead uh, in time for the photons that you've previously partially measured to have arrived there. Obviously, that's a difficult problem mm-hmm. uh, given the speed of things, which is just the fundamental speed limit of the laws of physics. Uh, which that, is what, that's hard to like catch up with, right? It's like one meter every three nanoseconds or something. Yeah, like so I think, I think uh, in, in fiber, it's something like a nanosecond is like a foot of distance. Um, so if you have a delay liner, a fiber loop to create a short-term quantum memory that's one foot long, that gives you a nanosecond, right? Mm. But but that, that doesn't accommodate for just the, the, the processing time and deciding what it is that you need to do with that feed-forward. It's not just a matter of measure, do something, you need to perform a, a calculation. So first it has to go back to a classical computer, 
does the calculation, ah, what do we need to do for the fee forward to decide what happens next? Well, there's already a huge delay. Good luck getting all of that done mm -hmm. in just a nanosecond. You can see where the problem is here. Uh, the speed of light's bloody fast. And, and so, so how do we overcome this? Well, that's where architecture come, becomes uh, important. Can we take some shortcuts so that, that certain elements of this uh, somehow mitigate that problem or bypass it or, or defer it until later? That's, a, that's another thing that you can sometimes do is, is defer measurements until later on and then just at the very end somehow post-compute things to accommodate for what's called the, like the reference frame, the, the idea that the measurement just requires a reinterpretation of the measurement results at the end. But that isn't always possible, and you might have to microstage this and, and do it piecewise. And mm -hmm. there are all sorts of tricks, and I don't know what the people at, um, at Jeremy's lab right now are doing exactly here, but th there are unimaginable tricks that you can apply. But that's sort of the, the way that, that things are going. At the, at the moment, we don't have this feed forward in any practical sense at all on a large scale. So everything's restricted to this um, passive only uh, uh, constraint whereby there is, there is no feed forward, we just put photons in to some passive circuit, in other words a beam splitter network, mm -hmm. and then you measure and then that's all you can do. But that severely constrains what you can do and limits you to things like what's called the boson sampling protocol which is, th there's good reason to believe that it's a, a computationally hard problem. Um, but it's not universal. It, it will never ever let you do things like the factoring problem that mm -hmm. compromises cryptography protocols or that allows you to do arbitrary quantum simulation or optimization problems. These are the things that are really of interest to us. It's sort of more in the regime of, of what this recent Google computer is, which is a very, very specific device that solves a very sp specific yet highly abstract, abstract and not particularly useful problem, um, that's sort of the regime that we're stuck in with optics. But what we hope to do is, is overcome this. Uh, so, I mean, you made the comparison to the Google chip. Mm. Um, at the very least, yes, the Google chip is, is running this idea of, of what's called the quantum supremacy sampling problem. Um, but it is designed on a hardware that is at least designed to be compatible mm. with large-scale error correction protocols right. and universality. Right. In the boson sampling case that you mentioned for optics... It fundamentally which, isn't. Right, so right. you need a different architectural structure. That's right, and that, that's an important distinction to be made, is that the Google one, even though what they've demonstrated is another one of these sampling problems, a random problem that isn't particularly useful but may in principle be much faster than, than what a classical computer can do, but nonetheless could architecturally be extended to something much greater than that. With passive-only optics, that, that, that's just a fundamental limit. You just can't go that way. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a constraint that isn't even possible in principle according to our current understanding. We necessarily need the feed-forward. And that's where things are going to get really, really hard because it might sound like a a minor or, or incremental step. It's not. This is a massive engineering problem to overcome the fact that we need to be able to buffer things to the point whereby some subset of the measurement outcomes can, can go forward and reconfigure the circuit coming up ahead in time for what wasn't measured to propagate through it. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's a really, really 
um, complex problem and um, and requires careful consideration. So that 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 is exactly the the important distinction there. So I mean. Again, all I can ask is for your gut instinct. Mm. We, we certainly don't have enough information to be able to say with any kind of engineering or yeah. scientific... Nothing's proven, right? Yeah. But a lot of people sort of look at linear optics, and as you said, UQ has always been at the forefront of this. Mm. The two major startup companies working on optical quantum computing are both run by former alumni of, of the University of Queensland, yep. Xanadu and SciQuantum. Yep. Um, and a lot of the selling points are things like well, optics don't need to run at ultra-cold temperatures. Optics don't need yeah. to run with ultra-high vacuum systems. You can integrate possibly CMOS fabrication techniques and yep. stuff. And they're, they're great selling points. Oh, they're um, massive selling points. The idea that you don't need to keep something in a, in a, in a millikelvin fridge, well, well, hey, that's a, that's a huge bonus, right? And even integrate, integration, and we'll get to this shortly, with uh, communication systems mm. that are necessarily going to be photonically right. based. That, so, that is, yeah, that, that's, that's probably the biggest selling point is that when it comes to networking devices, and, and this is one of the big selling points of quantum technology beyond quantum computing, things like quantum cryptography and uh, state teleportation, that kind of thing, it, 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 it's almost inevitable that, that at least initially this is going to be dominated by optics. It, it's not practical in the near future that it's going to be any other way mm-hmm. other than uh, some sort of light, which is inherently a flying qubit, something that moves at the speed of light. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't, in the short term, and I realise you do research into the long-term alternative of having big error-corrected slow-moving qubits, but in the short term, it, it, that, that, that's not the way it's going to go. In the short term, it's going to be, you have single photons and they move at the speed of light, so there's your qubit. Uh, well, if you want to interface that then with other quantum devices, a huge selling point is to have them directly interoperable rather than requiring complex physical process to, to inter, interconvert quantum information between, say, a photonic form and whatever, an electron excitation form or, or whatever mm-hmm. the other physical system is. And those, are, are, those aren't trivial problems either. If you learn about this in, in first year quantum physics, you think, oh, that's easy. You take an atom and a, a photon comes in and excites the electron. It all sounds very trivial. These are hugely uh, engineering-wise complicated problems. Mm-hmm. Certainly when you want to boost up the efficiency and make it have a high rate of success rather than just a one in a billion chance of succeeding, these, these are far more complicated than they sound. So the ability for them to be directly interoperable, that's a huge bonus when it comes to the networking environment. Mm-hmm. And certainly the initial quantum technologies, the, the ones that are commercialized at the moment that you can buy off the shelf, um, as well as things like the Chinese quantum satellite program, it's all photonics because these are the ones that are practical with current technology using optics. So obviously we don't want to be exclusive to, to the sorts of protocols that are accessible to us today. Mm-hmm. They're exactly the ones that we want to be inclusive of. Um, otherwise, it would just be completely counterproductive. And I mean, you know, again, you sort of, you play these games of trade-off and saying, well, you know, the engineering of the feed-forward problem in optics and the error correction issues in optics is difficult, but it has all these really great properties in terms of interconnectivity with communication networks, possibility of room mm. temperature operation, blah, blah, blah. And you sort of pit that against, say, a system like superconductors or iron traps where there's much more infrastructure-intensive 
engineering issues in regards to really, really cold environments or vacuum systems or stuff like that. Yeah. But the error correction issues and the controllability issues are easier. I mean, how do you personally, when you start thinking about research topics or who you're going to work with, how do you internally weigh these things? Do you say, well, I'm still confident the engineering issues with optics are still ultimately going to be easier than building a millikelvin dilution refrigerator that's the size of a building. This question of placing bets on on what the likely uh, future success stories are going to be is a tricky one, right? We're still at the stage, in my opinion, of, of the technologies whereby we don't really have a proper understanding of of who's going to win in terms of which physical technology is going to win mm. when it comes to building a scalable quantum computing device. Uh, more to the point, um, as, as you said, there are inherent selling points um, that make some of them inevitably necessary, even if they don't become the ultimate scalable architecture for, for sort of long-term quantum computing. And, 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 and the selling point of optics, as, as you said, the idea that this is the obvious choice for communication. Well, it seems inevitable that there's a future for optics. Mm-hmm. Even if it doesn't become um, the route towards building a scalable quantum computer, and that the, the, the supercomputers of tomorrow are going to be, for example, whatever, superconducting or iron trap, whatever the case may be, even if they absolutely win in terms of economics and scalability, there's an undeniable role for optics to play when it comes to networking because those other two simply are implausible in that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when it comes to interfacing those two, well, that's an open question, but one way or another, there's definitely a route for these. Certainly when it comes to satellites, even if you allow for uh, the sorts of sneaker technologies that you're researching, well, that won't be going between satellites, I can no, assure you, right? Sure. Uh, when it comes to satellite constellation networks, and let's face it, that's sort of the inevitable way of the future is things happening through space. Well, I can guarantee you 100% with delta equals zero that that's, that's going to be the, how it's going to proceed. It'll be optics based between satellites at whatever frequency. There's always going to be a role for this. And so it's a safe bet to to keep trying to develop this technology, even if it doesn't become the winner in terms of where the physical infrastructure is based for building the massive data center built on quantum computing technology. There's a role for it. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, this sort of moves on to the next section, the fact that certainly in recent years, you've you've moved away more so from quantum computing, Mm. at least in terms of large-scale universal error-corrected quantum computers, Mm. and much more into the communication space. I said with your collaborations with the Chinese and their quantum satellite programs, but just in the, in the general field of, of how these networks or how these, these basic networks are going to evolve. So, I mean, when did you decide to make this change or was it always yeah. in the back of your mind? That it, I'm more no, interested it, it in was really more evolutionary. I started my PhD in optical quantum computing. So the original sort of KLM, so Nilla Flum Milburn, this is the the in-principle way to build a scalable quantum computer using photonic qubits. But I think it's pretty clear that that that's uh, not necessarily the most promising route to building a universal quantum computer, not to disrespect Jeremy at all, but but even if that fails, um, a natural progression is to look into, well, where is this almost guaranteed to be successful? 
and the networking is basically it. So, so let's focus on that. Mm -hmm. And, and furthermore, then, well, given that the networking is going to be optical, and assuming that the that the the, the, the larger scale quantum computing systems are probably not going to be, uh, as we said, then how do you interface them? And, and that introduces architectural considerations of its own. When you have, um, for example, a distributed quantum computer where you have a data center here and a data center there, um, but it's not a uniform architecture in the sense that you've got this these bits and pieces that are networked via a different physical medium altogether. Now you have a hybrid architecture. Mm -hmm. And each subcomponent of that hybrid architecture has uh, its own physical constraints imposed upon it, which imposes a very different set of architectural constraints on the overall distributed system compared to what it would be if it was either of those technologies alone in isolation. Mm -hmm. And this is why when we start talking about things like the quantum internet and distributed quantum computing mediated via uh, you know, EPR satellites, so it's a bell pair, entangled pair distribution satellites to entangle remote quantum devices, that's where we have a whole new architectural paradigm that's, that's completely different to what it would be if it was just purely optics or purely whatever the other system has to be. And that's where it gets really interesting because the future will almost certainly be along those lines. It's, it's implausible that it'll just be purely one architecture once it's in a networked environment. So, I mean, people might have noticed that there's a bit of a jump here. I mean, we first start talking about like a single quantum computer, large scale, error corrected, can do factoring, can do reliable chemistry simulations, you know, the end goal that everyone wants from these machines. And it's sort of, well, we don't know who's going to win and there's a whole bunch of engineering challenges and we're not exactly sure where the field's going to go as the experiments progress. But now we're jumping to a completely different topic. We're now saying, no, we're going to assume that this is now ubiquitous. Mm. We've figured out the computational problem. We've figured out the economics of the computational mm. problem. We're now selling these things to institutions, individuals, yeah. universities. And we've now got to start thinking about a quantum internet. Mm. Now, at the moment, you know, you've discussed the Chinese satellite, you've discussed some of the other things that have been going on. They're still basically relegated to what's known as quantum key distribution right, protocols, exactly, yeah. which is far, far simpler in its engineering constraints than this idea of the quantum internet that you've been working on and mm. other people have been talking about. Yeah. I mean... Again, getting back to sort of motivation, it's like we can't see enough in front of us to say how does a quantum computer work at scale, but let's jump four steps ahead and say, well, let's think about distributed quantum computation yeah. through a quantum internet. But, that, but that's where it does become quite speculative, right? Where you're not making suggestions or proposals based on certainties of what the winning architecture is going to be. Mm -hmm. You're making suggestions or proposals based on, on bets or almost in a game theoretic sense about what are, what are the likely possibilities and the most likely possibility is that the, the global quantum infrastructure will be this hybrid system whereby it's not all just one single uniform homogeneous type of physical system and there are hybrid architectural constraints uh, that's what makes it so interesting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, 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 but if you're thinking in those sorts of lines regardless of which physical system ends up winning or, or what the future of quantum computing is, you can be sure that in a future networked world, it's going to be along those generic sorts of lines 
And therefore, that's the generic sort of way in which we have to think, which is in terms of inhomogeneity and, and hybrid systems, at least where communication is one physical platform and computation is another. Uh, that, that, that's precisely where it completely deviates from the route that's being pursued by the private sector at the moment, which is, okay, which physical platform is going to let us have the, the largest number of qubits with the least number of noise in an integrated device mm-hmm. residing in a single room, uh, a highly secure zone with access to few people, highly cooled. That, that's one way of thinking. That, that's a short-term way. But, but now we're thinking quite far ahead of that where we assume that's a solved problem and there may be many competing solutions to that. Now let's try and integrate the whole thing. Well, it's an interesting approach because people have made the argument, and I agree with it, is in the sense that, you know, the classical internet was sort of cobbled together because we didn't know really how networks were going to evolve. We didn't know how they were going to be used. We didn't know where the bottlenecks were, the choke points were, and something like that. We now have, what, at least a century, arguably even more, information about how they're constructed, what the constraints are, how they're used, where they fall over. And a lot of people who do work on the quantum internet say, well, let's take this knowledge from the classical world and put a much more structured design to a future quantum internet, even though the hardware might be 20, 30, 40 years away mm. from doing it. I mean, do you subscribe to this? No, um, I reject it outright. Um, the, the reason that the classical internet succeeded, um, unambiguously in my opinion, is because of its ad hoc nature. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can create a new device, um, like, like pick up a new smartphone in the, in the extreme case, whether it be a new smartphone or an entire new massive Google data center, and with no request to any authorities above, you plug in and you're part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's self-organizing. Uh, it, so you have a system which is completely ad hoc. Everybody can do whatever the hell they want, basically. Connect, disconnect, whatever. And it has this ability to self-adapt in a, in a, in a sort of self-regulating sort of way. It, it, not in the way that, say, a financial market is, which is also an example of a, a self-regulating system. But nonetheless, it's self-regulating in that everybody can do whatever the, what they want, but the whole thing works. Right? And, and undeniably, despite whatever complaints you might have about your, your, your ISP provider, the whole thing works in, in the most fantastical fashion, unprecedented in history, is, is how well the internet works, just despite the fact that it's inherently modulo bits and pieces, it's inherently unregulated, and mm-hmm. people can do whatever. It's, it's almost the extreme example of anarchism, whereby... You have a system which is so open, but yet extremely well-defined in how the interfaces work. Uh, that the people can do whatever they want, and it works in the collective interest of everyone. That was the success of the internet. That's the only reason it took off. Mm-hmm. If it was a closed shop system, where you had to apply to the government, you know, to be a part of it, and, and these were your rights and rules, the whole thing would be completely screwed. It wouldn't work. But it I suppose it's not so much in, in the regulation of 
who has access and who they have to mm. apply to have access. But, you know, there is physical infrastructure. Somebody mm. has to pay yeah. to put a fibre right. link across the Pacific. Somebody has to pay right. to put satellites into orbit. And if we had the ability to say, well, maybe there's a more cost-efficient way right. of saying, I need these trunk lines or I need these primary technologies. Right. So, so the key there is to create a system whereby it self-incentivizes. And that's exactly what the internet does, right? In other words, uh, people join on their own free will via local optimization. They're, mm -hmm. they're acting in their own personal best interest, and yet collectively it acts in the global interest. If you want to ensure the success of a global optimization problem in the absence of some overarching authority, which let's face it is not going to happen, what you want to do is make sure that local optimization is congruent with global optimization. That's what the classical internet has achieved. So, how do we achieve that in the quantum internet? The way, the way to do it is to, to ensure that the people are economically, using whatever economic metric you want, but one way or another, incentivized to contribute to the system uh, where the repayment is self-benefit. Mm -hmm. So if people's self-interest is paid forward by, by contributing to others, then you have a system that sustains itself and the entire economy emerges on its own without the, re the requirement for any kind of oversight or government. So, so how do we do that in the quantum context? First of all, it needs to be highly standardized, the, the utility, the product, whatever it is that people are communicating. And in the classical internet, it's communications links where you send bits. In the quantum internet, uh, for the larger part, it's entanglement, bell pairs, entangled two qubit states over long distances, because with that, you can do so many things you can uh, teleport a state from one side of the world to the other uh, with effectively no noise, depending upon only the quality of, of the entangled pair that you share. Or you can entangle two quantum computers to make a distributed quantum computer. Okay, so based on that, let's define the fundamental economic primitive to be a bell pair, an EPR pair, there's two qubit entangled pair over long distances. Well, we have this knowledge of quantum repeater networks whereby you have neighboring base stations and they distribute bell pairs and then you can do tricks like a party in between receives one half of each of a bell pair and it does an entanglement swapping operation which destroys those two qubits and leaves the ones at the extremities entangled and so you swap the entanglement. So just yeah. to clarify this a little bit mm. for people who want to analogize with the yeah. classical internet, I have a classical router. Mm. You know, you're the router and I'm trying to send a packet from me through you to somebody else. The packet still goes through you, your physical device. Yeah. In principle, you have access to it. But in the quantum regime with repeaters, right. you act like a router. Mm. But this funny little game of entanglement swapping right. allows me to form a direct connection. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. It, it changes the dynamics completely because in the, in the classical internet, the, the commodity is say a bit of bandwidth i pay to transmit a zero or one from me to you um, now the economic resource is different the difference is if there's a direct link between me and you uh, the commodity is a bell pair an entangled pair and it has to be of a particular quality um, but unlike classical inter uh, classical internet the, the latency doesn't matter because they're all identical and it doesn't matter when you receive them. I'm not transmitting um, information. You're not transmitting information with them. All it is is a static resource. Mm -hmm. But using this static resource, 
Now you can do arbitrary things at a, at a later time, like having that bell pair in storage indefinitely, it doesn't matter how long. I can now use a bell pair to in, uh, engage in quantum state teleportation, whereby I have a qubit and I do a measurement with my half of the entangled pair in conjunction with that qubit, and then boom, it appears on your end, right? Um, limited only by the noise of the bell pair itself, not by the channel of which we're communicating, which we bypass completely. Uh, but you can do the same trick for quantum key distribution, you know, distributed quantum computing. So it's easy to see that, at least in the first instance, uh, bell pairs are going to be the commodity, almost like a gold standard, directly in into convertible for money. One of my co-authors has referred to it as the entanglement-based economy. Yeah, precisely right. But, 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 but that, that's a very good way to think about it because we, we have a resource. They're all the same. We can do all of these things with it, like entanglement purification to take two copies and boost them to one with higher probability. We have all these utilities for it, like state teleportation, distributed quantum computing, quantum key distribution, countless applications. It's a fundamental, uh, fungible uh, economic resource. It's infinitely replicable. It doesn't depend upon what you're doing with it, just like gold. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what you do with gold. What matters is what you can buy with it. Well, this is the gold of the future. We have a single fungible resource. I can trade it with you. You can mm -hmm. put it onto a marketplace. Now we have the basis for an ad hoc economy whereby once people recognize that the, 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 the fundamental economic resource is these bell pairs, well, hey, I'm incentivized to contribute to it. So if I recognize that that, hey, uh, there's a really high demand for bell pairs between this point and that point. I'll just, uh, I'll invest in creating a new link to, to enable the creation of more bell pairs there. Mm -hmm. Or if there's another guy over in Antarctica or some whoop place, then, hey, I'll create a new node station there that enables bell pair distribution to there. It's now a completely standardized economic resource. It can be directly inter interconverted for monetary value. It can be floated on markets whereby, you know, over, over this particular ge geographic regime, we have a market where the cost of bell pairs has a market price. The future price on that market provides a direct indicator to investors of how they should be investing into this infrastructure with some sort of foresight based on the mar future market price of, of, where, of what the return on the investment by, might be in the future. The, the benefits of having a standardized economic resource as, to, as opposed to something nondescript is as absolutely astronomical. So now we're getting into the guts of what you're very interested in mm. recently. And in fact, you've been invited to give a, a talk at the TEDx in Newtown. Yeah. Um, Thing that's going to happen this yeah. November, which I'll, I'll yeah. link to in the description of the podcast for anyone who happens to be in Sydney and wants to come along. But it's very much this idea of both geostrategic implications mm. of a future quantum-based economy, but as you've already mentioned, the economics of it. Mm. So give us a feeling for this, because we don't hear that much about it, and this really is a, a very, very nascent area of research. Right. So, so, so uh, as, as I'm sure you the listeners probably know um, that the, the real big distinction between quantum computing and classical computing is that the relationship between computational power in the best case is 
is not just linear with the number of transistors you have, it's exponential with the number of qubits you have. You know, if you double mm. the number of classical CPUs you have, well, you know, modulo whatever the overheads are for communication, you've doubled the, the computational power that you have at your disposal. And, and the ability to network them doesn't change that. You make a massive um, cluster between data centers, all you're really doing is enabling them to share information. Mm -hmm. The net computing power hasn't changed at all. But if these are quantum computing devices based on this exponential scaling, well, if this guy has, has n qubits and the other guy has n qubits, then the total computational power is not n plus n equals 2n, it's now the exponential of that, mm -hmm. right? So, so they have this piggybacking effect. Okay, so imagine now that you're in a classical scenario whereby, say, Google and Alibaba both have their big supercomputers in China and America, respectively, and, and, and they're networked, but, you know, it's really just to share information and nothing more, and then it becomes adversarial, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, in, a, in an adversarial comp context where it's a zero-sum game how do you win a war what do you do you blow up the other guy you destroy their infrastructure at no loss to yourself mm -hmm. uh, from a game theoretic perspective the optimal thing to do is destroy uh, okay but but if you're piggybacking off each other in the sense that now um, the these two data centers are quantum data centers and they're exponentially piggybacking off each other whereby the utility that both of us individually have is exponentially greater than what we would have had in isolation by virtue of our having networked with one another. Uh, now we've got a scenario where it's not a zero-sum game anymore, whereby if you undermine your opponent, then you directly undermine yourself. And from a game-theoretic context, and that's exactly how strategic policymakers will think, this completely changes the whole dynamics of how things will evolve. And, and what, what that means is that if these were two quantum data centers by Alibaba and Google, and they were networked, and they had astronomically greater computational power, not just collectively, but individually, because of the, the fact that they were networked, well, you can be pretty damn sure that they'll think twice before they blow each other up. So to give a bit of context again, I give, we just going to put some numbers to this to, to give people an idea. If you want to rate your quantum computer and say, give it a number, let's say, as Peter said, with Google, we've got a quantum computer that's worth 10 units of value, and Alibaba has one that's worth 10 units of value. And then the argument is that you combine them, and because of the exponential scaling, it's not 20 units of value, it's 100 units of value. Right, right. At which point, if there's a conflict or a war, and that connection gets severed, or one of these data centers gets compromised or destroyed, you've gone from 100 units of collective power back down to 10. Right. Is that basically the, That's the right way of thinking going? about it? In other words, whatever exponential gain you had, if you destroy your opponent, you've completely destroyed that for yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Now, that's sort of the first order level of thinking, and you can put this now into a game theoretic context, but um, it can get way more complicated than that. Suppose that, suppose that you and I had, you know, I, I was a superpower and you were a lesser power, and you were you was the lesser power your your quantum computing facilities you know you know necessarily as said that they'd contribute to mine and mine will contribute to yours by virtue of networking but but yours even with this sort of distributed time sharing or whatever resource allocation between our unified power 
it didn't uh, enable you to, um, to for example, crack my codes. But then now if I uh, allow you access to contribute to my greater system, it suddenly does. Even though that might yield computational benefit to me. So from a, from a unilateral computational perspective, I'm inevitably enhanced whenever someone joins the system. But suppose it now suddenly pushes my adversary above the point whereby it gives them the computational ability to do something that compromises me, like crack uh, the codes from their intelligence agencies that they've had uh, stored on hard disks for the last 20 years mm -hmm. that were secured by public key encryption. And now that they can uh, undo that and, and, you know, let's face it, those sorts of things can compromise you for many, many decades after. So, so, so th then it becomes a full-on game-theoretic description of what's going on, whereby... Even though, if you just look at it in the simplistic sense of, you know, what boosts my computational power, well, then the answer is universal integration and inclusion and welcome everybody. But suppose doing so because of the virtue of the fact that it benefits them, that now suddenly pushes them just over the threshold where they can do something really compromising against me. Well, well, now we've got a second order issue to consider. And this is where it goes in the direction of, of, of sort of ga game theoretic geostrategic policy making. You could also imagine that it could go in completely different routes. Uh, one of the really interesting things is that if you, if you have two quantum computers of size, we'll call them N1 and N2, right? And imagine that N1 is very small. So this is some small state, for example. Mm -hmm. And N2 is the superpower. Uh, unlike most economic uh, systems, whereby it's the, the larger party that benefits the most. So this is, this is the, 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 the general phenomenon that you see in capitalistic systems, is that the larger party, e even under the sort of Adam Smith assumption that the mutual, um, mutual agreement benefits both parties by definition. It generally uh, benefits the larger party more, right? That, that's a general observation in capitalism, which is why you get uh, an increasing shift of wealth towards, towards the larger parties and a, an increasing skew in, in wealth over time. What, what you observe with, with quantum computing is that the smaller party on a proportionate basis benefits more by integration and fair time sharing of unified computational resources compared to if they were going alone. So if you're a minuscule guy, you're some really, really, really uh, small state and you just had one qubit, you know, mm -hmm. versus, you know, the rest of the world and they had billions and billions of supercomputers, you contribute, you unify with the network. Your one qubit on a proportionate basis benefits way, way more than what they do. Okay, so, so it's, it's not symmetric at all. Uh, so that might sound very attractive uh, at first glance. Uh, but how does the, uh, how does the cost-benefit analysis work in the sense that, yes, there is exponential gain in linking things together and sharing resources, but considering the exponential loss, if, I don't know, political alliances mm. change or hardware alliances right. change, does that incentivize potential balkanization? Right. That's exactly what it, what it could potentially lead to. If the smaller player contributes very little to the larger players, and the larger players contribute enormously to, to the smaller players, despite the fact that they all monotonically increase their own you know, selfish computing power, uh, what are the diplomatic 
implications of this? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so it could turn into a contemporary version of gum- gumbo diplomacy. You know, you have the the British warships off India. You know, just saying, do what do what you tell us to do, otherwise we'll fire a cannon at you. It can turn into that whereby the powerful states say, okay, well, e- even though we are benefiting from your from your small number of qubits contributing to our system or your small number of computer, uh, quantum computers, well, um, the threat of excluding you because you gain more than we do by virtue uh, of your inclusion also implies that you lose more by virtue of your exclusion. That's an asymmetric mm-hmm. diplomatic tool at that point. And you can imagine the future United Nations, if such a thing exists or whatever such systems might be in the future, that it'll go along the directions of strategizing on the basis of this completely inverted symmetry that was not the case previously. And now it'll be the case of threat of exclusion becomes a major diplomatic tool whereby if we just say, we're going to cut you off, you're not going to be part of the network, then with the flick of a button, with little cost to ourselves, speaking on behalf of, say, you know, the, 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 the richer nations, for example, then, then, then whatever the, uh, the, the prey is, the, the smaller nation that's excluded, they stand to lose uh, astronomically more. Mm-hmm. And so you have this asymmetric diplomatic negotiating power as a result of this. And it's inevitable that in the future where we do have a huge constellation of, of quantum satellites creating a unified distributed quantum computer uh, whereby everybody wants to contribute in the same way that we do with the current classical internet because our mutual uh, gain benefits the collective good, that at the same time that asymmetry could result uh, in enormous diplomatic opportunities to, to hold leverage against uh, less powerful nations. Mm-hmm. So how much is this formalised in any sense? I mean, I don't, aside from you, I don't hear very many people mm. talking about it, even right. though... Right now, it is operable. I mean, you see what's happening in China with their massive investment into quantum communications and computation technologies. And I think people would be remiss for saying that the United States response in regards to their national quantum initiative and the increase of funding there is totally detached from that reality. Mm -hmm. So are people working on this in a serious way? Even, you know, we're starting to see it already. Yeah, um... Certainly, the Chinese, in my opinion, are the more most forefront thinkers in politically in, in this particular field. Um, the Americans, despite having a larger cash at their disposal in terms of national initiatives, seem to be lagging enormously far behind the Chinese. Um, the the, the Chinese government seems to be very, very forward-thinking in terms of uh, the, the potential benefit of, of, of really, really sort of high-risk, high-return blue-sky technologies like quantum technologies, and they're going all in in it. And, and, and it's no coincidence that they're now, in terms of state investment, the, the, the biggest investor into this field. Mm-hmm. They, they recognise that if they're able to dominate this... Um, this has astronomical forward geostrategic payoff. Um, the, the, the people who are making these decisions are not doing this by accident. They're, they're, they're really, really thinking through this carefully, carefully in a strategic sense. 
Uh, whereas in proportion to, to the ability to economically invest in these things, despite what you said about America's national initiative, it, it's really nothing by comparison, mm -hmm. um, both on an absolute and on a relative basis. And, and for the same reason, it's, it's, it's no surprise that years ahead of anyone else, the Chinese are the ones who demonstrated long-distance satellite-based quantum key distribution. They recognize the benefit of this. I mm. mean, to put it into context, this is the ability to, with security guaranteed by the laws of physics, right? So, you know, unless we're insane, this is insurmountable. This is the ability to communicate, which literally no one can in intercept. That subverts all current cryptographic technologies. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a coincidence. That's extremely foresighted. And the Chinese really seem to be thinking along those lines. And, and, and it's not by accident. So in this particular case, have you been, you know, have you been trying to get more of a group together or like-minded individuals to say, look, I think we need to formalize this kind of stuff a bit more. Mm. I mean, we can sit here and think about it and, and hypothesize exactly yeah, what so, the geostrategic implications. So, so we've, been, we've been formalizing in the sense of trying to put it down in a game theoretic context. So, you know, um, a lot of people are familiar with, you know, simple mathematical representation of game theory. You have like the, the payoff grid. In, in, the, in the prisoner's dilemma, you have the, this, this two by two grid of here are the two choices that one person can make and here are the two choices that the other person can make. And, the, and then the matrix entries are what are the payoffs for, for these different choices. But that, that's the simplest of all possible game theoretic scenarios. And, and these things become astronomically large as you make more complex games, which is what the real world is. Um, but, okay, so, so how are the values in that matrix determined? They're, they're determined in the original sense by some simple classical argument, which is, you know, you're in prison and and you get this much money if you do that, or you get released from prison if you do that. These are classical considerations. Now we're in the scenario whereby there's an exponential distortion in at least some and, and, and probably most of those matrix entries, whereby if we can cooperate in our compute performance, there's an exponential increase in in, in what the computational payoff is, right? So to put it a different way, prisoner's dilemma doesn't turn into do I get a $500 fine or a $1,000 fine, it's do I get a $10 fine or me, my whole family and everyone I've ever known is obliterated. Right. I mean, as in the whole paradigm changes whereby it's not just is the whole return different, it's now that the alt outcomes are fundamentally redefined. Okay, so... So, so if you imagine a, a scenario whereby incentivization um, encourages uh, cooperative behavior as opposed to, um, uh, as opposed to, to attacking behavior. one another or dishonest behavior, exactly, then, then that leads to different outcomes. So, so, so what we've done in the initial sense is to, let's look at how these amplitudes change. And, and the first order one is, we gain exponentially our unified computational power. Alternately, what happens if now in doing so, another person gains the ability to compromise our security? Well, that's also an exponential change because mm -hmm. previously they couldn't do that. So it's not just these first order things that, that change in the game theoretic grid whereby it's just pure consideration of what's our, our, our selfish computational power and that's all that matters. 
What are the following consequences? How does that change the abilities of other people? Because they're also uh, equivalently uh, exponentially distorted in similar ways. Mm -hmm. And so you have this massive payoff grid of, of all these different game theoretic considerations. And it's not just some of the trivial elements that have been distorted. The whole thing has been completely manipulated. So where do you hope... I mean, we're getting towards the end of our hour. So where do you hope, not just on the hardware side, because I think we, we both personally have the same high hopes for where this technology will go from a technical perspective, but where do you hope it will lead from a political perspective and an economics perspective? I mean... So, what, so again, getting back to motivation as to what drives you to push forward in this particular idea, what ideal do you hope you can hear? What, what I hope is that this technology will be an overwhelming incentive for global cooperation rather than competition. And as I said in, in the first order argument, you can use a simple argument that everybody benefits by cooperation because of this exponential piggybacking effect. But at the same time, at second order, that could be undermined by the ability to give your adversaries abilities that they previously didn't have, for mm -hmm. example. But you combine that with uh, the fact that in the same way that the classical internet, this ad hoc ability means that everybody's incentivized to be part of it. If we can unify these, these two approaches, uh, for example, through a bell pair economy, a standardized economy, where you have a fungible asset that can be traded on open markets in a completely globalized and decentralized way, then it becomes an overwhelming force for un unification. There's this, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, the, the old sort of hashtag that no, no two countries that have, that have had McDonald's have ever been to war. I mean, it's complete nonsense. They definitely <laughs> have, but, but you sort of get what the ideological line is, the idea that once, once countries are economically intertwined, and dependent upon one another, then it disincentivizes them destroying one another. That's really the whole sort of neoliberal slash libertarian philosophy between behind um, encouraging globalization is that if you have integration, there's less reason to have war. Mm -hmm. And what I really would like to see is for the whole quantum technology sector to be driven in that direction, whereby let's have a standardized international market for for a fungible resource like bell pairs where people are incentivized to contribute to it both for self-interest and for the collective good in an ad hoc way. And, and if you establish a system like that, for then for the same reasons that the current day internet has been an overwhelming success for, for human rights and, and freedom of information, it'll equivalently be the case in the quantum context, but exponentially more. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thanks so, very much. Uh, just one more thing, if uh, there's anything you want to plug, as I already mentioned your TEDx talk, which I'll put in the description of the podcast for anyone who's interested. Is there anything else you want to add before we call it quits for today? No, I'll uh, hope to see you at TEDx. Yes, definitely. So, thanks, Peter, man. thanks a lot for your time. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a lot, everyone, and uh, I'll let you know when the next one comes out. Um, I don't exactly know when that's going to be, but just keep an eye on our Twitter feed and our SoundCloud account and your favorite podcast app, and I'm sure it'll pop up soon. So thanks a lot, everyone. Bye.